Welcome to Health Matters, Sonoma's weekly program devoted to health and well-being. Each week through interviews, editorials, and listener participation, we will explore topics and issues of contemporary medicine and its relationship to the lifestyles of our community. Our goal is to provide you with information and resources to help you achieve and maintain what you deserve, a happy, healthy, and productive life. I'm your host, Dr. Ned Hoke, a veteran in natural methods healthcare, speaking with you today from Sonoma Valley, California, for an hour of health topic digestion and discussion. Please stay with us. And welcome, let's see, and welcome back to Health Matters. Thank you for joining us again this uh, lovely Sonoma Valley Day. We hope to be joined by uh, James Kingsland, Siddhartha's Brain, Unlocking the Ancient Science of Enlightenment. If our, if our Skype call goes through, as we hope it will, we'll get a chance to visit with this uh, very interesting uh, gentleman who is the science editor of The Guardian. He's, um, he's the science and medical journalist uh, with 25 years' experience working with publications such as New Scientist, Nature, and now The Guardian. He's uh, written this book that's just out in April, the very end of April, and it's uh, qu- quite a story, and, and there's many, many layers to this story. Many of our guests, our regular Health Matters listeners will remember that a couple weeks ago we had a chance to visit with David Kessler in his book talked, talking about, the, about capture, unra- unraveling the mystery of mental suffering. Well, our guest today, uh, James Kingsland um, of The Guardian of London, uh, writes about a similar topic with a much larger footprint in terms of his uh, orientation to the topic. And so what I'll do now is I'll try to call him and I'll see if we can actually get him to to join us. So let's see if I can make this all work. Hello. Hello. James Kingsland. Hi. Hi. Great to talk to you. Oh, splendid. Uh, uh Thanks for thank you for joining us. We're uh, very enthusiastic about your visiting with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Splendid. Well, uh, we're our, our setup is even working, which is just fine. Uh, so let let's start right off the bat with this uh, this interesting book. I didn't get a chance to because I was struggling with my uh, technology. I didn't get a chance to. Um, do what I normally do, which is read something from the, the book that we're talking about. So maybe if we start, as the, as the book is Siddhartha's Brain is so sweeping in history and meaning that I'm, I'm really hoping we can just begin our journey by asking you to kind of give us an overview of the broad reaches of what this text is about. And it might help to start with who is or who was Siddhartha and what, uh, what where, let's go on from there. Of course, yes. Uh, Siddhartha was a prince living in the in the fifth uh, century uh, BCE, uh, between four and five hundred years before before Christ, and he he was a very privileged young man. He was, according to the stories, he he was living in a palace. He had um, all the the food and fine clothes and dancing girls that a young man could want. He, uh, he, he was married to a beautiful woman, he, he, he just had a child, but there was something about life that he found unsatisfactory. And for the first time, he came face to face with the realities of sickness, aging and death. And um, 
And that's where his spiritual journey really, really started, because um, even though he had everything that uh, you or I could possibly want, there was something missing. And um, we, we can relate to that, you know, um, there's this, this underlying sense of unsatisfactoriness, even when things are going, going really well. So that's really the foundation of, of my book. And uh, Siddhartha uh, Gautama, of course, he went on to become uh, the man we know as the Buddha after six years of intensive meditation and, and learning from, uh, from uh, uh, various yogis. He, uh, he finally made a breakthrough and uh, became uh, uh, the world's first enlightened being, or so we're told in the stories anyway. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, mindfulness is the heir of, of his, his breakthrough. Though nowadays it, it, it doesn't need to be a specifically um, Buddhist occupation. Um, it can be purely secular, of course. Well, it would help us, our listeners, to understand uh, if, if they, when they look at your book, you'll, you start out, or not starting out, but you, fairly early on, you let us know that you're a, a gentleman of a, of a Methodist background who is, at this, at least you announce as an atheist. So presumably the sort of religious domain of this would, would be, I mean, an atheist suggests sort of a, a refusal, in a way, uh, to, to engage the sort of spiritual or the otherworldliness of, 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 so tell us a little bit about your step into the place of, of, of embracing this in your own life, if you would. Yes, well, I was raised a Christian. I went to a Christian school. In fact, my um, my grandfather was was a, a priest in the in the Church of England. Oh my! Mm-hmm. And so I, I have a very a very Christian um, background, and I still subscribe to to most of the uh, Christian values. Uh, but I'm I'm also um, a scientist and a, um, a skeptic, and so. Um, over the years, I started to lose my faith. Despite being an active member of a, of a church where I lived at the time, I started to lose my faith. And, and ever since, I've, I've missed the, the spiritual dimension to my life. So um, when I found um, uh, Buddhism and mindfulness, it, it filled a gap that, you know, I, I almost I didn't know that uh, I was yearning some kind of uh, spiritual element to my life. I didn't realize that... I was um, missing that uh, uh, spirituality that Christianity had given to me, and also the sense of community spirit and the the quest for something bigger than than what we are as as individuals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and and in embrace it, you do. And uh, in, in looking at the the depth of your sort of just as you use the, you use the book as a as at least for me as a as a walk through the ancient history of Eastern religious traditions and so we're not only talking in your particular text we're not only talking about Siddhartha though because you're giving us the footprint of, of of a synopsis if you will of whether you're going back to the Vedas the Upanishads the Patanjali's and so on you you really have have swept through the the in a efficient and quick way to sort of give us a feeling for what it was like in those times, and you even sort of anthropomorphize, if that's not an impolite way of saying it, or you so uh, create a kind of a psychology, no sociology kind of story, you create a, a picture of what it was like for Siddhartha's environment. So, might you might say a little bit about how 
you feel that that was sort of instrumental in developing Siddhartha. In other words, Siddhartha didn't come out of nowhere. He he grew up in something. So maybe just a little taste of some of the background of this so our listeners can get it for those people who haven't done, as you and I have done, have done some reading of the larger footprint of this. Talk a little bit about that background, if you would, and kind of how then you feel that then Siddhartha came from that, that soil, if you will. That's right, yes. He, he didn't appear out of nowhere. He, he was part of a very uh, strong religious tradition in ancient India that went back um, some six or seven hundred years before he was born. Um, as you say, it was um, the religion of the, of the Vedas, of the uh, Upanishads, and so he was building on that tradition. Um, but uh, the spiritual seekers of his time, they uh, they were ascetics and and they were very um, hard on themselves. They, um, uh, according to the stories, they they lay on beds of nails. They they survived on a tiny amount of food. Um, they they put themselves through these incredible um, physical and psychological rigors because they they assumed that that was the only way to attain a spiritual breakthrough. And um, what um, Siddhartha uh, discovered was, was that, um, what he found was that he was weakening his body so much and his mind through these practices, he, he was actually impeding his progress. So he, he decided that to, to uh, aim for a middle way between sensory indulgence and asceticism. And so that that was one of his his innovations, the idea that you don't have to deny yourself um, everything in order to become a spiritually enlightened being. You do need a certain amount of of nourishment and comfort in order to, for example, in in order to be able to meditate effectively, you you need to to feed the body and um, to be in in, in a quiet, calm, conducive environment. Um, it's no good uh, punishing yourself constantly because you'll you'll probably you'll impede your progress. Right. Well, and of course, then he developed what came to be called the middle way, which of course is what you've just described in its in its rudiments. Now, part of your the purpose of your text, of course, is not merely to tell the story of Siddhartha in the in its ancient sense, but you you know moving forward directly into today's world, you you talk about how the Buddhist practices anticipated the the findings of cutting edge cutting edge uh, science and. Uh, and in bringing us to the present, you you indicate that that the Buddhist background, of course, for those of us who are familiar with it, and John Kabat-Zinn's work and others who have been able to uh, translate some of the techniques and technologies of that science. So maybe just if you could, an overview of kind of what your intention was in terms of bringing, not just intention, but what what. How this plays into the into the modern sense of, of, of brain neurobiology, and how you feel that this is so important for us to pay attention that you would take the time to write this lovely book. Absolutely. Well, um, John Kabat-Zinn uh, came from a Zen Buddhist background, but he realized that uh, what he was learning was universal. There were some universal truths about the human mind, right. about about the way we become. Um, we become attached 
to to emotions. And uh, for example, uh, the first patients who benefited from his mindfulness course were patients with chronic pain that hadn't uh, responded to any kind of treatment. Mm-hmm. And he started mm-hmm. to teach them how to how to let go, how to um, experience the pain fully, how, how to to uh, to be curious about it without becoming involved in it, without becoming attached, and without all the the emotional um, uh, baggage, as it were, the the cognitive um, right. uh, churning that can make pain so much worse than it needs to be. And that was one of the insights of of the of the Buddha originally. But uh, John Kabat-Zinn's uh, genius was to apply it in a clinical setting and since then it's been applied to uh, people who are prone to depression and also to people who are who are addicted to um, substances like alcohol cocaine nicotine so all, all what all these things have in common is that the way the mind um, uh, gets involved or attached to to experience mm-hmm. um, it is uh, it is a cause of suffering that, that can be that can be taken away, can be reduced through mindful awareness. Mm-hmm. Well, you you speak a lot about what the possibilities are in the future, and, and many of these uh, possibilities are really very clinical in, the, in their nature. There's a lot of personal refinements and personal well-being. Uh, that's uh, that's that's potential, but also there's quite a good good deal of of um, of uh, what do I want to say? Uh, anyway, I, I guess I'm back to the word clinical. There's pl- plenty of things in the, in the in the clinical environment that you think is really uh, amenable. So, how do you see your role in terms of um, sp- speaking to that? Are, are, is is part of what this book is about? As you delve into the various levels of the possibilities of the clinical applications, do you see a part of your role as being a, a somewhat of a herald in terms of uh, announcing some of those things and sort of celebrating them? Or say a little bit about that, if you would. Well, I certainly hope that um, I can celebrate them, mm-hmm. but. Um, Obviously, a lot of this research is already out, out there for anybody to find. The clinical studies into uh, mindfulness for addiction, anxiety, depression, uh, chronic pain. But I think maybe the unique um, angle that I that I bring to the subject is that um, it actually what started this off is uh, something a monk said to me, an abbot of of a Buddhist monastery in in England. He said to me. Um, they're all mentally ill, <laughs> which is an extraordinary statement. Um, and uh, but it actually it chimes with what a lot of clinical psychologists uh, are now saying that um, it's not accurate to say that there are some people who are mentally ill and some people who are mentally well. You know, we actually we fall. Each of us falls on a continuum uh, uh, of all, all the symptoms that are commonly associated with mental illness, such as paranoia, anxiety, low mood, um, even things like hallucinations are, are actually um, experienced by a very wide range of people in, in the population who, who aren't normally considered to be mentally ill. So what this, this monk was really putting his finger on, on, the, on, on this, this, this insight, which is, is, an, is an ancient uh, Buddhist insight, that um, uh, according to, to Buddhism, you can't be uh, fully well until you become enlightened and um, 
uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm in favor of a, a secular view of, of mindfulness, but mm-hmm. it seemed to me that was a very interesting point to, to make that, that seems to, to echo what clinical psychologists are, are beginning to um, conclude. Well, you're, you're translating that, that enlightenment, or at least as I understood what you were writing, was is optimum psychological well-being. Is, is that how you are phrasing enlightenment for yourself? Absolutely, yes, that's right. Um, in, in fact, I, I would say if you're, if you're searching for, for some kind of spiritual breakthrough, um, part of what you're searching for is optimum mental well-being. You're, you're searching for a connection with your f- fellow human beings. You're looking to transcend your, your ego and to become more than what you are already. But in, in addition, you're, you're looking to, um, to become well, to become a better person, a happier, more contented, more fulfilled person. Mm-hmm. So you now one of the, it says can you, one of the questions that I have options here can, could we possibly expect that meditation practice might have different results among varying socioeconomic backgrounds uh, personality types that kind of thing what what do you have to say about that that general question Well it's certainly true that um some people are, are already more mindful or less mindful than others I mean speaking for myself um, before I began began meditating about five years ago, I was a very mindless person. You know, my my, <laughs> my brain was all over the place. Right. I was constantly distracted by by you know thoughts, particularly uh, self referential thoughts, and um, you know I was never really focused on on the present. And for me, that was a that was a source of um, a lot of dis- dissatisfaction and, and suffering. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess. Somebody, somebody like me, me who is who, who who comes into this with a very low, poor state of mindfulness, can probably benefit more than somebody who's maybe um, fortunate enough to be to be mindful in in the first place. So, mm-hmm. so that's that's the first thing I'd say. Okay. But also maybe uh, people who are particularly prone to stress and anxiety, and. Um, um, who perhaps have an addictive personality uh, are much more likely to benefit um, from other people who maybe are less prone to those things. Mm-hmm. You have a wonderful uh, section on, on, on Herbert uh, Benson and your uh, visits with him at, at the Harvard cardiologist who developed the relaxation response principle. Maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about that story and kind of how that fits into how you how you are presenting here some of this sort of larger, uh, persp- not just perspective, but the experience of, med- of, what, of meditation as you know it. So tell us a little bit about Herbert Benson, and, and it's, it, it, I gather from the way you write it, you had quite a nice visit with him and, and, and learned le- actually quite a great deal. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's a great guy. He's in his 70s, but he's still very enthusiastic about, about his, his work. In fact, he's still working... Um, as a, as I understand it, he's still working as a cardiologist, and he's still um, working in the uh, the foundation which he started mm-hmm. uh, to uh, promote the relaxation response. But essentially, going back to the 1970s, he um, uh, he was experimenting on on monkeys. Um, he, he managed to find a way uh, to get them to lower their blood pressure remarkably something called biofeedback but anyway um, some followers of the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi 
um, the um, the Beatles guru uh, came knocking at his door and insisted that that he he tested them, he investigated them. Um, you know, they said, "Why why are you uh, mucking about with these monkeys? Uh, test <laughs> us!" And um, he turned them away to start with, but um, eventually he relented. Right. And he he wired them up. Uh, he, he did all kinds of measurements on them as they were practicing transcendental meditation, which um, involves uh, repetition of of a mantra. And um, he found that all these uh, physiological markers in their body, their their heart rate, their metabolism, their, their muscle tone, um, they all changed. Um, they, they became much more relaxed and calm as they, they practiced um, this form of meditation. And um, the one thing that didn't change was their blood pressure, because they, they were young young people. It was it was uh, low to start with, but um, all these other favourable changes in in their body took place simply as a result of their focusing on this mantra. And um, what Benson later went on to discover was that um, the same thing happens when people focus on uh, on their breathing or on a repetitive. Uh, movement such as in yoga, a mindful movement in yoga, um, or, or prayer, as in a contemplative uh, prayer in, in Christianity. So all all these things helped to uh, to focus the mind and to to break the train of ordinary thought and bring about all these remarkable calming physiological changes, which which as you say, he named the relaxation response because it was the exact opposite. Of the fight or flight response, mm-hmm. uh, so it was, it was a terrific discovery. Which is well, which is of course a huge, a huge discovery, exactly as you say, and and how, and subsequent to that, an enormous amount of development in in physiologic uh, apperception in terms of the the, the disease states vis a vis the parasympathetic or sympathetic dominance states and so on has become really a sort of a very primal touchstone in, in a lot of medicine uh, medical areas and so it so then when you move that that idea forward into the meditation zone and and you see that if almost is kind of if nothing else is is happening in a positive way you're you're getting some re, you know auto regulation in in that that realm which is considered now so critical in so many ways yeah speaking myself as a as a clinician i i have to struggle with that every day with my clients so the the business of normalizing and, and equalizing the and making better really the the responsiveness of the nervous system is is substantial your book also goes further in terms of talking about uh, you know neural plasticity and a lot of things having to do with actual brain development and we unfortunately we won't have much time to talk about that here today but i just wanted to point that out because for our listeners who are interested in in brain development and and issues of that type you you do get a good deal into that area as well um uh, i according to uh, my time that i have with you i'm supposed to sort of be wrapping it up here um Tell me, uh, James, is there uh, a website that talks to of this book and where, where our listeners might go and, and, and see more of your work? Yes. If you want to find out more, I have a blog called uh, Plastic Brain, and the URL is um, www.plasticbrainblog.com. Mm-hmm. Or you, you can contact me on uh, Twitter at James A. Kingsland. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm very happy to uh, to connect with people on Twitter, or of course you can you can take a look at um, 
Amazon or Barnes and Noble, where you can find some more information about the book. Right. Well, it's a it's a splendid book. I also I wanted just before we leave, I wanted to mention Ajahn Chah was of course with us here for quite some time in California, as you probably know, and yeah. and he was I spent not a lot of time with him, probably two or three different sessions of when he spoke, and he's a, a, a lovely Englishman, and I, I'm so happy that he, you had a, the pleasure of meeting him and and in he and him enabling you to sort of be. Uh, introduced in in the way that he, in his charming way, can introduce people to this so much of this work. So I think you 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 lucked out there in terms of uh, meeting him, uh, Ajahn Amarno. He's an inspiration, an absolute inspiration. Of course, he's still uh, he's still going strong here here in the UK at Amravati. Right, and you can listen to his uh, Dharma talks. So you can download them uh, from from uh, the Amravati website. So his wisdom is is available to to everybody, which is terrific. Absolutely, James Kingsland. Thank you so much for taking some time for us and staying up so late. We really do appreciate it. No problem at all. It's been a pleasure, Ned. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Oh, splendid. Good day to you, sir. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, there we go. And what a, what a lovely book it is. And I was so grateful that he had to stay up till almost midnight to be with us. So how, what, what more can I say? Now we get a chance to uh, move on at our program. We get a chance to talk about mindful eating. And we get a chance to visit with our next guest. Uh, and so please stay with us. We'll be back with you in just a moment. Sign up now for Pets Lifeline Summer Camp, running June 13th through August 19th for kids ages 6 through 12. Pets Lifeline Summer Camp includes cool art activities, fun games, weekly visits from Lion Ranch, kitten socializing time, therapy dogs, and much more. And best of all, a lifelong experience while caring for kittens, cats, puppies, and dogs. To register or for more information, please call 707-996-4577 or visit them online at PetsLifeline.org Programming for KSVY is brought to you in part by Larbre Automotive, Myers Financial, and Tina Schoen, Broker Associate Sotheby's, Krista Granton Insurance Services. And welcome back to Health Matters. Dr. Ned Hoke today joined by uh, by Marcella Friel. 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 And uh, we're going to get a chance to talk about um, Learn uh, mindful eating. Learn EFT to liberate unwise food choices. So we're 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 back on the addiction ra- uh, racket. Uh, thank you for taking taking some time for us today, Marcella. Hello, Ned. Thanks for inviting me to be here. It's great to be back on your show. Well, um, is I've got to find your right mic here. So we're going to just keep trying. So keep speaking, if you would. Can you hear me now? I can. You hear me now? How about now? Is that the right mic? There. Wait a minute. Try that okay. one. Stand by. There we go. We got, right. we got the right mic finally. Good. Okay. Fantastic. Well, Marcella, you are, like you say, you're a return visitor. <laughs> Not everybody comes back. I don't quite know why, but I'm just kidding, of course. But you've got something coming here at, at the Shambhala Center, which, of course, we have spent a, a great deal of time over the years of, of, of Health Matters Radio here in Sonoma, talking about the Sonoma Shambhala Center on 255 West Napa Street. Um, and your program is on May the... Th- uh, oh, it's, uh, there's tomorrow, the, tomorrow night. T- tomorrow night, the 13th mm-hmm. at 7 p.m. Mm-hmm. And so maybe you could just walk us right into that program and tell us 
what you're going to be doing and kind of why you're doing it and kind of also we'll, we'll get a chance to, like I said before the show, we'll get a chance to visit a little bit about who Shambhala Center really is and mm-hmm. kind of what, what they mean to our town and stuff like that. Okay. So go ahead right into it if you would. Well, thanks again for having me on your show, Ned. So the program that I'm leading this coming weekend, starting tomorrow night, is called, as you said, Mindful Eating, Learn EFT to Liberate Unwise Food Choices. And I really appreciated what I heard Mr. Kingsland saying about mindfulness as the heir of the Buddhist teachings. Um, Mindfulness, mindful eating, I guess the first thing I want to say is that mindful eating is not the same as dieting. Oh, thank goodness. (laughs) Thank goodness. So if you think about dieting, anything that you go on, you will eventually come off of. It's kind of like what goes up must come down. Right. So when I hear people say, oh, I'm on a diet, really, it's just a matter of time until they're off the diet. Mindful eating, by contrast, is a way of life. It's about developing an ongoing relationship with your food based on being in the present moment. And I became interested in mindful eating through my own experience of meditation practice. I've been part of the Shambhala community for the better part of the last 30 years. Like they. Yeah. And um, in terms of EFT, EFT stands for Emotional Freedom Techniques. It's also called tapping in the sort of common vernacular. And EFT is a very simple self-help tool for stress management that uses fingertip tapping on acupuncture points at or near certain acupuncture meridians to relieve stress. So EFT is a very simple tool that's extremely effective for relieving uh, food cravings, binges, self-sabotaging eating patterns, and, and then really going even deeper than that, core beliefs that drive those patterns and those behaviors. I really appreciated um, what Mr. Kingsland, your previous guest, was talking about, about attachment to our emotions. And meditation is a really powerful tool for loosening that attachment. And then EFT, actually, I find, in my own experience, even after years of meditation, um, that EFT is extremely effective in terms of loosening, reversing, undoing core beliefs that can really drive us into behaviors that don't serve our highest good. So this weekend, I will be teaching the EFT technique. We'll be doing a little bit of meditation practice. We'll be doing some journaling. And this weekend really is for people who struggle with their food choices and their food behaviors. And we're going to go deep into core beliefs. And my, my hope is that by the end of the weekend, people will come away really just as I said, having liberated some of those beliefs and having, you know, gaining at least a foothold on uh, undoing and reversing and healing some of their negative behaviors. Now, we talked about Friday night. Now, is is Friday night the sort of opening gambit and then it goes through the weekend? In other words, do some people just come for the Friday night or, they, or how does that work? Well, people are certainly welcome to come Friday night mm-hmm. and then decide whether they want to I do see. the weekend. I see. Yeah, yeah, right. Which is, which, is, which is Shambhala does that quite a lot. Yeah. You have a kind of a teaser, right. a teaser Friday night and then the Saturday, Sunday kind of follows. Yeah. So, okay, so we've just had the privilege really of a, of a very uh, well-spoken and literate person about the purposes of uh, the opportunities of meditation and now we have you who mm-hmm. also uh, shares some some of that that uh, experience and and the depth of exp- and so we we're really privileged actually to to get a chance to visit uh, this the, this way about this topic so 
for those listeners who may feel that they're somehow that I mean many of these things are 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 so driven behaviors so I can imagine that many of our listeners or at least some of our listeners out there probably would say to themselves I can't really change this this, right. this is not really going to happen I mean I've tried everything I tried Weight Watchers I tried this I tried that I mean I've tried so they've got the I tried on each of their four each of you know five of their fingers on each hand and they say I know that's hopeless now yeah. what you I think what you and I both know is a it's not hopeless and b the stepping stones that you are likely being presented that are, you're likely presenting are the are the very ones that are the ones that typically are very much work for quite a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So without just sort of being that particular to death, talk about give us a sort of a, a scenario, if you will, about you know somebody who's really deep in the heavy weeds of really being in, in, in serious eating disorders of one sort or another. Yeah. Tell us a story or two about that kind of thing. So our 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 seriously you know addicted, troubled it can't happen here kind of people might just catch a little flavor of, mm-hmm. gee whiz, maybe it could happen here. Yeah, thank you, Ned. That's a really good um, issue to bring up because when we're dealing with behavior change, what I observe and also what I experience is that there can be an inspiration to change, right. a desire to heal, and then really right along with that, almost like you know a double helix, if you will, there's resistance <laughs> there's and not, there's doubt. Not almost at all. Always. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, most of us live in kind of a push pull relationship with our desire to heal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with weight gain or with food behaviors, that's not something that happens overnight. Mm-hmm. It's a cumulative result of a lot of years of the choices that produce that result. Right. One of the things that I work primarily with women mm-hmm. and what I notice, being a woman myself and working with women, is that women, we are so quick to blame ourselves. We're so quick to blame ourselves. So I begin, and I would really like my listeners, if they take away nothing else from this interview, to take away the message that it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault that you struggle with your food. It's not your fault that you struggle with your weight. It's not your fault that you struggle with your body image. Wow. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing even wrong with this situation. There are things in the way that need to change. Well, you know, in James Kingsland's book, he speaks very, very well to that. He says, you know, all this shame and blame sort of stuff that he was used to in Christianity, mm-hmm. he said what the Buddhists call it, they just call it unskillful behavior. Yeah. In, instead, of it, instead of us being, you know, mortally, mortally or wrong or uh, morally wrong even, sometimes we're just unskillful. And, and what, a, what a great relief that is when you can really embrace that, that kind of an idea. So say, even that, I would say unskillful almost still puts a little bit of like, oh, well, I lack skill. Uh-huh, okay. So here's, here's when I I'm talking with clients about resistance. Here's what I say. Okay. The resistance that you're feeling is, in reality, your way of loving and protecting yourself. Ah. Yeah. ah, There you go. Because, you know, there's been, you've tried and you failed, and you've tried and you failed, and you've tried Mm. and you failed. Right. So, yeah, there's resistance that protects you from yet another failure. Uh And EFT, emotional freedom techniques, is precisely the tool that can chip away at that fear of failure becoming uh, an obstacle. Hmm. So 
I want to tell you, you asked about a couple of stories. I did, yes. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I really look at is, like, how, how, what can I say? Diets so don't work. Right. And they so don't work for so many reasons. But one of the reasons why diets don't work is because they don't address core beliefs. Okay. We don't, they don't address core beliefs. So, I mean, I have so many stories from clients that I can tell about this. But here's, I'll, just, I'll tell one. That the other, a couple of days ago, I was working with a client. And she's making fabulous progress. She's, you know, she's not eating sugar. She's not doing her late night eating. She's really feeling a lot of freedom and a lot of relief. And we were, on a, uh, we were in a session. And we were celebrating, like, yay, great, you know, you're making progress, woohoo. Right. And she said, yeah, I am. And I'm noticing that I feel kind of sad. And I, and of course, me, my role working with clients is I'm kind of like Nancy Drew. I'm, I'm like on the case here. I'm looking for what's really underneath all of this. So, okay. Mm-hmm. okay, you're feeling sad. So, what's that sadness? Is it a familiar sadness? Is it. You know, do you associate it with anything? Like, where is it in your body? And basically, through that whole inquiry process, where we came to was this woman's father was emotionally unavailable to her, except at mealtime. So the family would gather together, and oftentimes there would be big family reunions and parties and on all sorts of wonderful food, and grandma is cooking in the kitchen, and dad is present and happy sitting down eating with her. So, of course, now she's abandoning those behaviors on a subconscious level, even though dad has been gone for many years. You know, he's not on this earth anymore. She's leaving dad. Mm -hmm. Do you see? Mm -hmm. So there's a, you know, underneath all of that is the core belief. If I give up this food, I'll be alone. Or it's the last piece of dad's love that I'm holding on to. Wow. So... Using EFT, using emotional freedom techniques, again, which is fingertip tapping, anybody can do this. Right. Anytime, anywhere, just about. So we were able to tap that down, go back to those memories, and help resource her to find different ways that she could connect to her father mm-hmm. that didn't have to involve that food. So what I suggested to her, and this is you know, another piece that I bring to my work with clients, is why don't you just make a little altar in the corner of your room to your dad? Like put up some pictures, mm-hmm. light a little candle, and just ask that energy to come back into your life in a healthy way. And mm-hmm. she, by the end of the session, uh, we were working over Skype so I could see her face. She was glowing. I mean, that's what it means to liberate unwise well, food choices. Well, getting dad back is is a piece. You know? Without having the secondary piece right, of, right, right. of the... Right. In EFT language, the memory that she was uncovering, we call that a guiding star. And that's a really big piece of what makes addictions hard to break. Mm. So, again, like think about a little girl and mom and dad fight all the time. And it's terrible. It's stressful for her. But then, like, there's one day they go to the boardwalk. Mom and dad are happy. They sit on the bench in the boardwalk, and they're all eating ice cream. That's a guiding star. That feeling of mom and dad are happy. Everything's right in the world. Mm -hmm. Then, going into adulthood, she's looking to find that feeling of satisfaction and peace and everything being right in the world. She reaches for the ice cream, except it's not a little ice cream cone now. It's half a gallon. Mm. Do you see? Mm -hmm. So this is, I mean, um, 
Mr. Kingsland was really talking a lot about, you know, neuroplasticity and how the brain works and all of that. And the good news is, even if people feel utterly hopeless about their prospects of healing, it does take rigor. Uh, you know, he talked about the early ascetics lying on a bed of nails and all of that. It, it doesn't take that level of rigor, but it takes <laughs> commitment. Takes commitment. Yeah. On, on, on that idea, we'll take and a, willingness. We'll take another break. We'll be back with uh, Marcella Friel and, and talking about the, the the learning EFT to liberate unwise food choices. Uh, Friday night at Sonoma Shambhala Center at two five five West Napa Street here in Sonoma. Marcella was with us some time ago, and and she gets she's back in town again to share with us uh, some of her teachings. And so, please stay with us. We'll be back with you in just a moment. Programming for KSVY is brought to you in part by Body Best Collision Center, Larbre Automotive, and Tina Schoen, Broker Associate, Sotheby's, Krista Granton Insurance Services. This health moment is brought to you in part by Sonoma Valley Hospital. I guess that's our health moment for the day. Thank you very much for Sonoma Valley Hospital for sharing their spirit with us and their intention with us. So now back to Marcella. Um, oh, I, I, for a li- there must be some listener out there who probably says, "Well, couldn't possibly be me," or "I need to know know more about this," or you know, "Can you tell me more?" So feel free to give us a call here at Health Matters seven zero seven nine three three nine one three three again seven zero seven nine three three nine one three three. Take a moment to talk to Marcella Friel and talking about learning about some of this program. That's uh, we, how you can liberate yourself from unwise food choices. Again, it's there is a program this weekend all weekend. There's a sort of a teaser on Friday night, 7 o'clock at 255 West Napa Street. But anyway, feel free. And also for more information to register, go to sonoma.shambhala, shambhala spelled S-H-A-M-B-H-A-L-A dot O-R-G. So, Marcella, mm-hmm. while we're waiting for a call, should anybody choose to call, uh, let's go back to some more stories. I think that that really kind of, for me anyway, is is um, is the kind of thing that I think that at least of the people that I sort of hang out with, maybe a lot of people don't really realize that there's really a hope. There's, in other words, they they they, they they're kind of white knuckle people that think that the only way they can do anything is by themselves, with their will and with their intention and so on. And the idea that you could go into a group process basis, or you could go into a place of working with other people, and it's not just some kind of a weepy kind of encounter group environment, but where it's really actually a working kind of situation that actually is both entertaining as well as uh, nutritive and, and comforting to, mm-hmm. to help people with their really deep needs. I think a lot of people really maybe haven't ever had that experience. So, so maybe anybody who wants to call, they can talk about that. But in the meantime, uh, tell us or, or school us a little bit on kind of a group process, kind of how you do it and kind of... Mm-hmm. You know, show us a little bit about that, if you would. Mm-hmm. Kind of give sure. us a give us a feeling of what the group would be like. What the group would be like? Yeah, that's a good question. Thank you. So, like this weekend, for example, um, I will teach the EFT technique, emotional freedom techniques, or tapping, mm-hmm. which is something that people can do for themselves. And that's one of the things I really appreciate about tapping is that I mean, like children, for example, love tapping. 
And, and tapping can be used, by the way. There's a slogan in the tapping world, try it on everything. Ah. So it's really effective with food, but it's not just limited to food. I see. So I will teach the tapping technique, mm-hmm. as I've learned it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll probably do a demonstration with somebody who will volunteer to you know, be a brave soul and be tapped with mm-hmm. and on. Mm-hmm. And then we'll do some group tapping. And group tapping, there's an interesting phenomenon called borrowed benefit. Mm. So we might be focusing on your addiction to ice cream. And maybe I have some lower back pain. But even as we're tapping to focus on your addiction to ice cream, I can get some benefit for my lower back pain. Yeah. Really? Well, I mean, if you think about it, you know, we all know we're not separate, ultimately. Right, right. right? But So there, there, is, there is truly a group process. I mean, in other words, meeting energetically. So mm-hmm. you, you're in the room, and if people are getting, if you're getting benefit, I'm getting benefit because we're all getting benefit. That's right. I exactly. See. It's and beautiful. so, so you're saying, really, in a roundabout way, perhaps this is a, a very positive experience. I mean, in a sense. So this is again, this is not weeping necessarily. But there may be some weeping, but I mean, it, but 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 it is. Yeah, that's an important point that you're bringing up about EFT. Is that um, so much trauma relief work? has involved reliving the trauma. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and with EFT, you know, there's we we do revisit negative experiences because mm-hmm. EFT focuses on the negative, but we don't stay there very long. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, it's not a torture session. I mm-hmm. mean, there's a it could get a little intense at the beginning, but then again, we're tapping, so we're moving the energy even mm-hmm. as, mm-hmm. you know, it's recollecting. So, what I will also do this weekend is I'll have people do some journaling. I'm going to ask um questions for them to answer, to lead them into discovering for themselves what their core beliefs are. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about that, and then we'll do some tapping on that and, you know, look at the antidotes as well to those beliefs. So, like, for example, with this client that I mentioned, you know, just before the break, for her, you know, letting go of the food was letting go of dad. Well, okay, that's, is that a fact or is it a belief? It's a belief. Well, is it true? Well, okay. What are some of the alternatives to that? Do you see? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I want to mention, just what you were talking about earlier, one of the biggest obstacles that I see that we have in the healing, uh, biggest obstacles to healing is that we believe that healing is an event. Mm. It's really a process. Mm-hmm. You know, our dominant medical model and even our therapeutic model to some degree is focused so much on curing you know, symptom relief, curing. And curing something can be an event. Like somebody can be cured right. of cancer, right. and they're done. Right. Healing is not an event. Mm-hmm. It's a process. So people mm-hmm. will look and they'll say, well, I've, I did this thing. I tried to lose weight this way, and it didn't work. Mm. They're expecting an event mm-hmm. for what really is a process and really is a way of life. Healing, you know, what is healing? It's the choices that we make every single day. Just what um, your previous guest was saying. Do, you know, do I do this or do I do that? What is the basis of that choice? So much of it is driven by our beliefs. So if we can heal at the belief level, the choices become more effortless, and then the behavior follows. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, another reason why diets don't work, you know? Right. Well, <laughs> habitual behavior is, is of course... I mean, so many of us have learned to get our ducks in a row with habitual behavior. And so habitual behavior has had a lot of benefits for us. Right. And so for those of us who are, uh, I consider myself in the same 
stuck space as anyone else, uh, they, they have their upsides, and they also have their secondary gains. So um, maybe we should say a, a little bit about secondary gains. But before we do that, again, uh, for a call from Marcella Friel, talking about mindful eating and learning how, learning how to do EFT, uh, feel free to give us a call. Should there be a question, 933-9133. Now, I don't want to miss the chance to have you tell us about Shambhala because I oh, think okay, sure. one of our listeners, are, we, they are used to, we announce Shambhala things all the time on, on Health Matters Radio here, but not often we have a Shambhala person here. We've, we've invited them many, many times, and it's for some reason they don't seem to be able to come. But now we have a Shambhala person here in front of us. Mm-hmm. So share with us a little bit about Shambhala. Now, I, I, I told our listeners historically that I had been a student of Trumpa Rinpoche, and I had opened up the first year of uh, Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado. And so I'm somebody that is intimate with the birth of the Shambhala Mm -hmm. teaching in that way anyway, but I haven't paid much attention in recent years. So now it's up to you to tell us currently what is Shambhala? What, why is it there? What's it doing? Yeah. Give us a little bit of a Shambhala story, if you would. Sure. Well, Shambhala is interesting, and it's interesting that we're talking about Shambhala following um, Siddhartha's brain. Yes, it is. Because the origins of the Shambhala teachings, they, they have their roots in the Buddhist teachings of the Himalaya region in Tibet. But the Shambhala teachings, as we're practicing them at the Shambhala Center, also have their own independent you know, basis. They're not, they're not religious teachings per se. But the story goes that um, there was a king who became a student of the Buddha. And of course, at that time, the Buddha's students were all monks. And this king went to the Buddha and said, you know, I really would like to be your student, but I have my kingdom that I have to rule. So what do I do? And the Buddha gave this king the teachings that have since evolved into what we now practice as the Shambhala teachings, Mm -hmm. which are focused on how to bring the principles of loving kindness and fearlessness and gentleness that the Buddhist teachings propagate, but how to bring them into everyday life. So we, you know, most of us here are not going to become monastics. We're not going to go run away to a retreat for the rest of our lives. We have to live in this world. So how do we live in this world according to spiritual principles that aren't religious particularly, but that are based on creating a decent human society for everyone? Um, So that's the emphasis of the Shambhala teachings. And for people who don't know, the Shambhala Center is basically uh, right across the street from Curves, and it's in the building where Copy Store and More is located. Yeah, so it's right in the middle of West right, Napa right Street. Ne- right next to the Marketplace Shopping Center. Yeah, exactly. Right, right, right. So that's, that's, that's my elevator speech about the Shambhala teachings. And, um, well, it's a good one. And, 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 and the thing is, is that what, for Sonoma Shambhala, people can go online and they have weekly meditation. So for people who are looking to learn meditation or beginning starting meditation practice, mm-hmm. they can go get a, a basic teaching in, in, in meditation. They can get on their email list and they can hear about upcoming various kinds of programs. Some of them are free. Some of them have small costs involved. Right. Uh, but there are there, there's a uh, there's every week there's something there's a there's a movie there's a something mm-hmm. and so Shambhala is also bringing people together to uh, to enjoy the, the 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 communion of of, of fellow meditators so in, in is like you were saying in your classes this is a 
a union of spirits in terms of work and so on. Mm-hmm. So the Shambhala way is, as I experience it, is a, it's a it's an ongoing bringing together. So I think some of our listeners who may not, they may not be necessarily drawn to any particular piece of it, but they would like the fellowship of, yeah, a, of, a, of a group of meditators, uh, Shambhala Center, of what I know is available in town. And I, it's, it's one of the really uh, nice places. It's, very, it's a very pretty place as well, but also the people are very earnest in, in, yeah. their, in, their, in their work and so on. So it's, it is a wonderful opportunity that we have in Sonoma to have the Sonoma Shambhala Center here. Yeah, it is. I don't know really. I mean, there might be a couple other communities that teach meditation. Right. And that is one thing I will say about the Shambhala Path. The, the core of the Shambhala Path is a program called Shambhala Training. Right. And it is a series of weekend programs that focus on just what we were talking about, these principles of enlightened human society. Right. But I will just say as an endorsement that the meditation instruction within the Shambhala training path is, as far as I know, one of the most detailed, Mm -hmm. um, precise, and very well laid out Mm. meditation instruction paths. So if people want to learn how to meditate, really... Um, it's a good training, so I guess I would really encourage people to explore that if they're interested. And if people want to learn about mindful eating, if they want to learn EFT to liberate unwise food choices, this Friday night, that's, that's tomorrow night, 7 p.m., uh, at the Sonoma Shambhala Center, 255 West Napa Street, here in Sonoma. Register at sonoma.shambhala, that's S-H-A-M-B-H-A-L-A dot O-R-G. If you, want to, if you long to create a sustained relationship with food but struggle with your eating habits, this program is for you. You will not only enrich your understanding of mindful eating, you'll learn effective practices for making conscious, appreciative eating a reality in your life. What a promise that is. It is. I'm, I'm backing it up, though. All right. All right, Marcella. <laughs> thank you for joining us today on Health Matters. Thanks so much, Ned. All right. And if you cannot pacify your spirit and you let your mind be complicated with desires and worries, your disease will not be cured. To be healthy, you must avoid anger and worry. Keep your mind happy, your heart at ease, and your desires at low levels. That's the basic guidance of the Yellow Empress Classic of Internal Medicine, the basic book of Chinese medicine. Our Health Matters motto still is, healthcare isn't a noun, it's a verb. Tune us in again next week. Until then, I bid you well. Stay tuned for great programming on KSVY.